So for the last couple of weeks, I've been preaching a sermon series titled Intro to End Times. It is a subject that is often relegated to only a certain kind of Christian. Like there's a Christians that major in this other part of, you know, the Christian faith and this other part of Christian faith. And then there's this, you know, group that usually likes to talk about end times. And we often relegate it to this particular group. Sometimes we do that, or sometimes we see this topic as mysterious or spooky and we leave it, you know, in the back burner for some other day. Other times we look at it and we say, okay, this is great theoretically, but it's actually impractical in its application. How, how does this even affect the way that I live here and now? And my aim in this series isn't to give you the nitty gritty. It isn't to go through the sequence of events or the signs of the times. All these things are very important and this can come later. But my simple aim for this whole sermon series has been for us to open up our hearts and our minds to embrace the subject. Many of us have had experiences in the past, maybe negative experiences in the past, where this topic has been preached in such a way that induces fear more than longing. So fear and a trepidation, you feel intimidated and uh, uh, at ill ease, you are at unrest when you think about the end times. But seldom is it preached in a way that it uh, spurs on love and longing for the return of Jesus. And so this is the simple aim that I've had during this sermon series for us to open up our hearts, open up our minds, embrace the subject. So my first message, I talk about how the glory of Christ and the glory of the church is best seen against the backdrop of the end times. We can't truly see the glory of our ruling and reigning King, Jesus Christ, uh, more than when we see him in the context of the end times. That's when we see the lion and the lamb in full glory unveiled for the world to see. We also get to see the glory of the church. Often we see the church as such a, you know, humble and, you know, broken and weak vessel. And why would God entrust the gospel message to the church? And we often see it with our natural eyes. But when we look at it in a biblical perspective, in the context of end times, we see what the church is meant to be and what the church will become. A mighty force, fearless even unto death, that will will be steadfast, will be faithful until the return of Christ. So we see the glory and the beauty of the church when we study the end times. Last week, I talked about how the gospel message is incomplete without talking about the end times. The good news of the gospel is not good news without the return of Christ. We cannot say that the gospel is good news if all that it gives us is security for the next, what, 30, 40, 50, 60 years that we get to live here on this earth. The gospel message is so much more glorious than that, more eternal than that. And so that's what I touched on last week, because often, and this is even the way that I was raised, End times is seen as a separate subject. This is a subtopic. This is an elective. It's not seen as an integral part of the gospel message. And so I wanted to make sure that we as a community understand that the end times is very much part of the main gospel message. We cannot talk about the fullness of the gospel without talking about the return of Christ. And so today, I'll be answering a a different kind of question, maybe less on the theoretical, theological realm, and a bit more on the practical side. 
I want to answer the question, okay, this is all great. I'm so glad that you laid this out for us. Now maybe I'm a little bit more open to understanding and examining and studying what the end times is about. But how does it affect me today? This is all great. This is all good. I'm glad it's in the Bible. But does it have any practical application to my life today? Like 2020, does it have any practical application to my life today. When I walk into my workplace on Monday morning, when I get on that zoom call, you know, to talk to my friends, when I relate to my family, is there any practical application to the end times? How does it affect me today? Because we can theorize and discuss and diagram and exegete all there is to know about the end times without it actually touching our lives here and now. We can easily relegate this as a mental exercise, as something to intellectually grasp, but it actually has no bearing and no meaning in our practical everyday life, on the way that I live my life today, the way that I invest my time, my money, my focus on the way that I raise my family or serve my church or engage with my coworkers. But the Bible has a very different perspective on the, on its view in the end times, God seems to be under the impression that one of the most practical issues, one of the most practical topics to talk about with the most real life application, the most tangible ramifications that can affect your life in the here and the now, not just sometime in the distant future is the end times. Let me ask you this question. When you look at the Bible and you think about, okay, what are the top three uh, writers and authors in the Bible that you think about when you think about end times? The first is usually John the Apostle, John the Beloved, right? He is the one who pens the book of Revelation. And that is, you know, the most detailed, you know, play by play, if you will, when we talk about the end times. The second, in, in my view, is the book of Daniel. And this is, you know, somebody from the Old Testament, but somebody who also gets a play-by-play of the things that are to come. Now, the third, this is up for grabs, but this is personally who I think of when I think about the end times is Isaiah. He's also an Old Testament prophet. Now, there are many more, of course. If you look all through the span of all of scripture, there's so many authors uh, that talk about the end time. But what do these three in particular, if not more, what do these three have in common? They received these visions about the end times in a place of suffering, not in a place where they were in their study and they had their cup of coffee and they had good Christian music playing and they were just ready to receive a revelation from the Lord. It's like the Lord barged in on a very inconvenient moment in their lives when they themselves were going through suffering. For example, John the Beloved, he was already very well advanced in years and he had been exiled to the island of Patmos and under the persecution of Roman Emperor Domitian. Daniel was taken captive as a youth 
So he was taken from his home, taken from his native land, from his family. He was taken captive as a youth and lived in captivity in Babylon. His friends thrown into a furnace and he himself thrown into a lion's den. So we're not talking about very ideal circumstances. Third, when we think about Isaiah, he's not just someone who received a message from the Lord and then just, you know, kind of regurgitated it to people. He was someone who actually lived what he was preaching about, what he was prophesying about. He was also living as a captive under the Assyrian Empire. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever walked with a friend through a very trying and very difficult season in their lives? Usually when we have friends that walk through very difficult times in their lives, we as a friend, the best thing that we can do is just be there for them. We just, you know, we want to offer our company, our comfort, kind words of reassurance. And I would never think about talking about the end times. That's like, look, look, Susie, I know you love the end times, but this is not the time to talk about it. But it seems to me like God chooses that very moment Not when they are at home, surrounded by loved ones and in a good place. He chooses that moment of suffering, that he chooses that moment of exile. He chooses that moment of captivity when they are under uh, oppression, when they are under persecution, when they are in chains. God chooses that very moment to talk about the end times. And it feels very insensitive. Like, God, you are very tactless. Why would you talk about the end times when they're going through so much? That's the incredible irony about this, that these men were given visions and blueprints of the end times in a moment when they were suffering the most. Have you ever asked yourself why God would choose that very moment to talk about the end times? My take and my theory about this is that end times brings us to a place where we can see God in perspective once again, and we get to see our suffering in perspective once again as well. It might be the most thing, the most practical thing for us to meditate on, not when things are good, but especially when things are hard, especially when it's inconvenient, especially when the last thing you would think to meditate on would be the end times. I'm just going to walk us through three, three very concrete ways in which Uh, studying the end times and meditating on the end times actually helps us in our life in the here and the now. The first is that as we meditate on the end times, God teaches us about what is actually important. Because often we live lives that are so distracted, so overwhelmed and overstimulated. So our senses live attacked from every angle, ambushed from every angle with all these different things we ought to focus on, we ought to pay attention to, we ought to take care of. But often this doesn't allow us to see things in a proper biblical perspective. Let me give you an example. This upcoming Thursday is a very important day here in Korea, and that's because it's Sunung Day. It's college entrance exam day. And for those who have been living in Korea, you guys know that every year this is a very high-stress time of the year. These students that are getting ready to apply into colleges, they've been working for years and years toward this goal. I'm not saying that's a healthy thing, but I'm saying that's the most focus way that I've, I've seen, you know, an entire population put all their resources, all their energy into this one day. Sacrifices have been made. Money has been spent on tutors and academies. Meals have been skipped. 
you know, sleep has been skipped. Hundreds of pages have been memorized because they know that when this day comes, they will be tested and evaluated according to a very particular standard. And this day has great weight and great bearing on their future. It will expose what their last years have been all about, whether the sacrifice that they've made was worthwhile. And these students will study every possible question, every possible topic, as if their lives depended on it. Because in many ways, in the Korean education system, it does. What happens on this day, how you execute and how you perform on this testing day will you know, will determine what kind of college you go to, what kind of job you're able to get, what kind of even social status you will have, you know, even like how eligible you are as a marriage partner. All these different things seem to hang on this one day. Leading up to it, you know, what high school you you go to, what middle school you go to, what academy you go to, even what pre-K you go to, all of these things are kind of in preparation for this Sunung day, for this college uh, entrance exam day. As important as this day that is coming, this Thursday is, in the Christian walk, we live our lives like there is no moment when we will be held accountable for the lives that we've led, the decisions that we've made, the things we put our trust in, the things we treasured and prioritized over others. We live a very aimless kind of existence on this side of eternity, thinking, well, There's really not going to be a day when it'll matter, you know, like how I spent my money, how I spent my time, what I prioritize, what I say yes to, what I said no to. I'm just hoping for the best. I'm just living this life as best as I can. I'm just hoping for the best. I just hope that I don't fall into really bad sin. I hope that I don't walk away from the church and that's the best that I can hope for. But the Bible says something very different. It says, don't just live a life hoping for the best. Live as if there is a day that is coming and that is surely coming where you will be held accountable for the kind of life that you've led. It matters how you live today. It matters what you say yes to today. It matters how you spend your time and your energy, your focus, your service, your time, your money. It matters how you spend this life because there's going to be a day where you will be held accountable to it. It shouldn't put, you know, like this fear-induced obedience in our hearts, but it should give us weighty, you know, a, a weighty understanding of the fear of the Lord. This life that you've been given, it's not yours, it's the Lord's. And one day you will be held accountable to what kind of life you've lived. Now, Matthew 7, this is, you know, a, a passage that we've gone through, uh, through um, our, our Bible studies in our house churches. Matthew 7, you know, it talks about what will happen on this day of reckoning, this day where we stand before the Lord and bear account to what kind of lives we've led. Uh, Jesus says something very interesting in, in chapter 7, verses 21 to 22. He says, he looks at people in the eye and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
Let me translate this for you just in my own personal terms. God is not impressed by my pastor title. God is not impressed by my resume. He's not impressed by how many messages I've preached. He's not impressed by the many works that I've done in his name because I can live my entire life doing ministry until I'm a hundred and I go and see the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do ministry in your name? Didn't I lead New Philadelphia church in your name? Didn't I go to the nations for missions in your name? And God is not going to say, ooh, how many disciples did you make? Like, ooh, how many nations did you fly to? How much money did you give to charity? How many sermons did you preach? How many hours did you clock in in prayer? That's not what he's going to say. He's going to ask me, do you know me? Do I know you? That is going to be the measuring rod. That's going to be the standard that he's going to be looking for on that day. Because I can live an entire life doing things for him without knowing him. I can memorize entire Bible and know things about him without actually knowing him. And so Matthew 7 is so sober-minded in the way that Jesus frames it. He says, it's not a matter of what you're saying. It's not a matter of just saying, look, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I guess I'm saved. No, it's about the life that you live that comes out of that profession of faith. Do you know him? Does he know you? Do you live a life that witnesses to that confession that you made with your mouth? It causes someone like me to fear the Lord. It causes someone like me to not take for granted just because, you know, just because I say the name Jesus, just because I go to church on Sundays, just because I'm doing Bible reading or I pray or I do K1, just because of these things. It doesn't mean that on that day I'm, you know, safe. That's not what it means. The gospel makes it very clear that you can do all these things. You can do all these actions. You can execute. You can actually look like a Christian. You can sound like a Christian. Uh, but God is not fooled. You need to live a life that is in accordance to that belief, in accordance to that faith, in accordance to the will of the Father. It should cause many of us who live six days out of the week in the secular ma- marketplace, who relate to co-workers, who relate to neighbors, who spend time with our families, who are, are spending six days out of the week out in, in the world, it should cause us to re-examine our lives. It should cause us to reprioritize the things that are important in our lives. In, uh, in, in a previous chapter in Matthew, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. No one can have two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then, only then, he goes on to say, Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or how about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. And so this only makes sense when you talk about the previous verses, when it says, Your life is more than how you live here on earth for the next 60 years. Your life is so much more than that. 
Where you place your priorities, what you value, what you long for, what you make sacrifices for, that's going to show. And it's important for you to have those priorities right here on earth. And when you know that, when you have that, then you can look to God and know that he's a good father, that he'll take care of you. He takes care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Why will he not take care of you? This is such a comforting verse because it reminds us that God is taking care of all the things that we often get so anxious about, all the things that we stress over, all the things that we lose sleep over. God cares about those things more than you do. It's not like God is like, okay, here's my plan. I'm going to take care of bird number one, bird number two, bird number three. Okay, bird number 3,565. Oh, shoot, I forgot to take care of Susie. That's not how it works. God takes care of every bird of the air, every flower of the field. He's going to take care of Susie. That's his promise. And that's because he's a good father. So he teaches us what is important when we have this understanding that our life is so much more than just this brief moment that we get to live here on earth. Our life is eternal and our values need to match up to that. Understanding the end times, it teaches us what is actually important. What is worth your attention? It doesn't mean don't invest in anything. It means invest rightly, invest wisely, invest eternally. There are things that don't look so important here in this life, but they're going to be the most important thing in the next lifetime. So invest in those things. Second thing, when we look at the end times and we study it and we take it to heart, it teaches us to suffer well. It teaches us to suffer well. You know, in contemporary Christianity, it's very unpopular to talk about suffering because it's uncomfortable. Like we want to believe that once you become a Christian, there is no suffering. We want to believe that following Christ, uh, there's only going to be pros and no cons. We want to believe that this life we can live as if it was a Christian Disneyland. Like things are only going to get better and everything's going to go my way and every prayer is going to be answered. But that's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible very clearly says, and Jesus very clearly says, there will be suffering. There will be persecution. There will be inconveniences. There will be sacrifices. But learn to suffer well. Learn to suffer well. In 2 Corinthians, and this is written by Apostle Paul, someone who's been beaten, someone who's been bad-mouthed, somebody who's been persecuted, somebody who's been in chains, they've been tortured, they've been expelled out of cities. He's, been, he's gone through all these things. He's been shipwrecked twice, all of these things. He lays it all out, right? This is somebody who hasn't lived a cushy life. This is not somebody who, you know, just lives a Christian life and and is really happy going on with with life and business as usual. This is someone who has borne the cost and borne the weight of what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. And this is what he writes in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, he's talking about beatings. He's talking about persecution. He's talking about losing his family. He's talking about all these things that aren't easy to gloss over. And he's calling this light and momentary affliction. He's saying that that light and momentary affliction, this thing that seems so big right now in your eyes, but it's actually just a snap of the finger. It's just, 
you know, just a brief um, momentary affliction. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's a very small price to pay in comparison to what you're getting in return. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It takes a very special kind of person to be able to say this with conviction. Somebody who has seen a lot of suffering. They have gone through very low lows. And not because, you know, it's just, you know, one of the things that happens in life. It's because he chose it this way. He chose to follow Jesus. He chose to be persecuted. It's, he's not living in a Christian nation. He's living as somebody who's persecuted. And he says, there's a reason why I don't lose heart. There's a reason why I'm able to withstand these sufferings. And it's because these slight, these light, temporary, momentary afflictions are actually creating for me, forging in me, building in me something so much greater in glory and in weight. It's actually doing something much greater than than I can actually see here in the natural. And that allows me not just to suffer, but to suffer well. Suffer well. This is not him trying to be blasé about human suffering. If anybody knows suffering, it's Apostle Paul. He knows what it's been like. He knows what it means to be in chains, all alone, abandoned by everybody. He knows what it means like to be betrayed by those people that he's been sewing into. He knows what it, what it looks like to be physically beaten and intimidated and berated and his name slandered and his reputation gone. All these things. He knows the pain, and the suffering of all of that. But he also says that there's a secret to the way that I suffer. There's a secret for me to be able to suffer well. And that is because I know that there is hope. I know that there is glory on the other side. There's glory on the other side. With that glory in mind, with eternity in mind, with reward in mind, with Jesus in mind, this is nothing. As hard as it is, this is nothing. He's not trying to be blasé and, and, you know, insensitive about suffering. He knows fully what it feels like. He knows fully what it, what it looks like. And he's saying that this is still momentary. This is just light affliction. For us here on this earth, one of the greatest um, experiences of pain that we can have is actually losing a loved one. And this has been a year where much of the world has experienced loss at levels maybe that haven't been experienced before. Even in our community, we've had different people experiencing very deep, personal, painful loss. It's very interesting that in the midst of even the case of loss, which is the greatest, most painful, tragic, traumatic event that you can experience on this side of eternity, Apostle Paul In 1 Thessalonians 4, this is what he says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, about those who have died, who have passed away, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
It means that the way that a Christian grieves and a way that a non-Christian grieves is fundamentally different. And this is the reason why. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For this, we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the reason why Christians and non-Christians, we grieve fundamentally in a very different way. Christians grieve, yes, but they grieve not as those who do not have hope. We as Christians, because we know of Jesus is coming, because we know that this life that we live right now, this is not it. This is not all there is to life. This is not all there is to existence. There's going to be a resurrection of the body. There's going to be a reuniting with the saints that have gone before us. There's going to be a glorious day where we get to meet the Lord face to face. And this is a reason why we can grieve, but we can grieve with hope. This is why we have encouragement in our hearts, even though we go through very difficult times here in this lifetime. Because we know that there's glory on the other side. This allows us to suffer well. It doesn't mean that we won't suffer. It means that we'll be called to suffer, but suffer well. So the end times, it teaches us what is fundamentally important. It teaches us to suffer well. Sufferings will come. It's inevitable. It's a matter of time. It's a matter of just living here on earth, Christian and non-Christian alike. We all suffer in this lifetime. And third, it teaches us to have hope for the church. It teaches us to have hope for the church. I'm going to get a little bit personal here. In the recent while, and especially this past year, we have seen the Christian landscape like very dramatically shift beneath our feet. The way that Christian faith is expressed, what comes out of pulpits, what comes out in social media, what people meditate on, what people put their hope in, all of that is being brought to the surface. And at the same time, this past year, we've also seen some big downfalls in the church. We've seen some major, you know, uh, spiritual leaders morally fall. We've seen the major cracks in the church now being exposed. We've seen all these things. Now I am, I am not a blind idealist. I am very much a realist and I see the state of the church at the same time. I know that that's not it either. I know that the gospel gives me hope The end times gives me hope. The return of Christ gives me hope to know that this broken vessel that I'm looking at right now, this this broken form of the body of Christ, this broken form of the bride of Christ, this is not it. That there are more glorious days up ahead when we 
just won't try to love the Lord. We shall love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We shall love one another as we love our own selves. We will see the church in its maturity. We will see the church rising up to become what she has been called to be. Even this past week, I was just looking through some very disheartening news about some major pastors, you know, that, that have, you know, since been let go by a major church because of a big moral failure. And for me, when I look at that, I don't just say, well, that's that pastor's fault. I actually look at this and be like, I'm not exempt. There could be a time when I feel like I'm invincible and I do not need to be held accountable and, you know, like accountability and all these other things are for other people, but not really for me. No, when I look at these things and I see the weakness of my own human frame, it puts fear of the Lord in my heart and it makes me pray for the church. There's this one um, pastor that actually talked about a very interesting transitional time in human history when it was probably least likely to see revival hitting the land. And it was in the 1700s, in the early 1700s, this is when churches were starting to empty out in America. When modernism was coming in, the scientific method was coming in. Now in the industrial revolution, all these other things that made Christianity look kind of archaic, kind of like, oh, that's kind of like what our parents believed in. That's kind of like what superstitious people believe in. But people, you know, today that know what's up, that know about, you know, uh, the scientific method, all these things, obviously we don't believe in these fairy tales anymore, right? And that was the attitude. It was really rapid secularization of society. And so churches were starting to empty out. And people were so jaded and people were so, you know, dry in their faith. They said, okay, this church thing, this church era is behind us now. This was a thing of the past. Now we're looking to the future. We're looking to progress. We're looking to industrialization. We're looking to these other things that give us a very bright future. Now, the interesting thing is that it's in this context that we see the great awakening explode in America. When it was least expected. The Great Awakening, you know, something that primarily happened in the 1730s and 1740s. It was a massive revival that swept through American colonies. And people like Jonathan Edwards, people like George Whitfield, they would preach in front of thousands of people and mass salvations would occur. They'd hold meetings inside churches and people would pack in these buildings and stand outside just to want to hear the gospel message and respond in repentance. There'd be times where they just go up to the pulpit and even before they can say a word, this, the presence of God and the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit would just fall in the room. And people, even before hearing the, the message that the preacher you know, had to preach, they would begin to rush the altar and repent before God and ask Jesus to become their Lord and Savior. I've heard, I've heard of you know, stories of entire cities, entire towns that are swept through with this kind of revival to the point where it changed the economic livelihoods of people where bars and, uh, you know, and, and, and gambling places and places of prostitution would go bankrupt because of this revival that was sweeping through a town. 
As modernity and the scientific method and secularism began to take off in America, it was believed that the Christian era was over, but it was just then when revival exploded. People had left the church in droves, and now they were being brought back in, defying all logic, against all odds, where spiritual complacency and the political secular spirit was so strong and it had emptied out churches and it it made everybody spiritually sluggish. It was precisely in that moment in history when God said, this is the perfect condition for revival. This is it. This is the moment I've been waiting for. This is when revival, it's perfect condition for revival. Now the world that we live in right now with all the political polarization, the division in the church, The rampant culture of celebrity pastors and assembly line consumer Christianity. You know, all the different ways in which we've idolized everything but God. You know, we see the state of the church. We see the state of the world. And in in, in contrast to that, we look at the Christian faith and sometimes we look at it and we say, like, this is so archaic. This is so outdated. Do people even believe in this anymore? This is so irrelevant to today's world, to my daily life. Many of us growing up in this generation have grown so jaded and so cynical because of yet another fallen minister, because of yet another sexual abuse case in the church, because of yet another church that speaks with hatred and arrogance instead of Christ-likeness and compassion, because of yet another disappointment, yet another disillusionment. For those of us who have been in the church for long, it doesn't take too long to, to, to become cynical, to become jaded by the state of the church. But for those who are tempted to give up on the church because of all these things that you see, and you're seeing rightly. I'm not saying it's not there. I'm not saying, look, just turn a blind eye, think positive thoughts, you know, and things are going to get better. That's not what it's talking about. The end times and understanding the fullness of the gospel and the return of Christ, it means that we look at the fallen state of the church. We see the fallen and broken state uh, of humankind. We look at it. We acknowledge where it is, that it is beyond hope. It is beyond repair. And in the midst of that, God says, I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to take this thing that is broken. I'm going to take this thing that is sinful. I'm going to take this thing that is idolatrous and adulterous. I'm going to take this and I'm going to make for myself a bride who will long for me. In Revelation 21, verses 1, uh, starting uh, verse 1. Apostle John, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these are words that are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha 
and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is where things are headed. And this is such a necessary reminder, especially nowadays, when it's so clear to us Man, we need God. Man, we need revival. Man, we need the Holy Spirit. We need repentance. We need to turn back to God. It's so evident. It's not just visible to people in the church. It's visible to people outside of the church. We need God to intervene. We need God to renew. We need God to take this thing and make it new. In the midst of that, it's so important for us to keep our eyes fixed on that vision that God has of his people, a day that is coming where we will be seen as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, pure and spotless. Revelation 22, and this is, you know, one of the very last words that are penned in the entirety of scripture. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The people of God, it's not, you know, it's not uh, uh, defined as the spirit and the army. It's not defined as the spirit and the body. It's not defined as the spirit and the temple. All these things are true about the identity of God's people. But the predominant identity that God's people will take on in the end times will be that of a bride. Let me tell you what's different about a bride from a family, a temple, a body, all these different other analogies that are all over the Bible about things that are true about the people of God. A bride is lovesick. A bride is longing. A bride is looking forward to the day of reunion. A bride isn't just going through the motions because it's the right thing to do. A bride is consumed with longing and zeal and desire, jealousy for her husband. This is not just a servant that we're talking about. This is not just somebody who's gritting their teeth and obeying, trying to do the right thing. This is someone who is lovesick for her bridegroom. The spirit and the bride will say, come. There's going to be a day. When the spirit of God and the mind of this bride will be one, will be in unison. Let me ask you a question. How long can you go, you know, being in the same mind of Christ before you feel like you've deviated from that? How many minutes, right? We're not even talking about days here. We're talking about minutes. But we're going to see in this day a bride that has the same thoughts as the Holy Spirit. And together in unison, the spirit and the bride will say, come, Lord Jesus, come. There's a day that is coming. And we will see it. When we will see our bridegroom, the one that we long for, the one that we've been waiting for. He's going to come for his bride. So I'm just going to have us close with a time of prayer. We could have... Um, Pastor JP and the praise team come back up.
as a body of Christ, as a church, I don't want us just to view the end times as this topic of study that is, you know, a great mental exercise or maybe even, you know, a blind spot that we have when it comes to our understanding of scripture. Like, oh, okay, this is something that I need to learn uh, because I guess I don't know very much about it. That's, that's, it's more than just that. This has very important, very tangible, real life applications and ramifications in your walk today. A people that are looking and fixing their eyes that coming day, they know, they re-examine their lives, reprioritize their lives, and land at what is actually important about my life. What is it that I'm living for? What is it that I'm going to work for every day? What is it that I'm striving for day in and day out? What is this all about anyway? It teaches us about what is important. It also teaches us to suffer well. Again, this suffering is inevitable, but the choice and the decision that we have as believers in Christ is that we get to choose to suffer well. We get to choose to do it with eternity in mind. Knowing that this is but a light and temporary affliction. This life and these priorities and these things in my to-do list and these obligations and responsibilities that are on my plate, all these things often get ballooned out to become so all-consuming, to become the reason why we're anxious, the reason why we can't fall asleep at night, the reason why we stress out. These things are but light momentary afflictions and that's why we can suffer well in this life not just in some day to come and lastly in the moments that we are tempted to give up on the church when we are when we are disillusioned and frustrated and brokenhearted when we look at the state of the church even when we look at the state of our own hearts, when we look there and we see, man, there's still idolatry there. Man, there's still fallenness there. Man, there's still addiction there. Man, there's still so much in me that needs to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. When we are tempted to give up, when we are tempted to throw up our hands and just be like, there's no use. There's no point. In that very moment, a reminder that this is not where it ends that there is a much more glorious destiny, a much more beautiful destiny for you and for me, for God's people. It reminds us that there is still hope in the hands of God for the church and for fallen mankind.